Among Halloween-themed attractions at theme parks or local neighborhoods, haunted houses are among the most popular. Guests are invited to walk through these interactive setups, which often include ghosts, actors in various forms of spooky costume to jump out and give visitors a good scare, as well as a dark and dingy atmosphere that enhances the experience. But these are meant to be fun and are in no way malicious or sinister. There have been, however, real haunted houses and abodes throughout the world, each with their own frightening backstory. There's the Tower of London, for starters, which was the scene for numerous political tortures and executions through English history. As such, reports of the ghostly apparitions of some of its more famous and infamous figures are said to stalk its cold stone halls. Then there's the creepy island in the middle of Mexico City that's completely adorned with old and broken dolls, which are said to keep watch over the place, and have, according to eyewitness accounts, been known to move on their own accord from time to time. The aforementioned places are indeed frightening, yet they pale in comparison to the subject of this week's episode. About 30 miles, 48 kilometers outside of Manhattan in the sleepy Long Island town of Amityville sits a nondescript Dutch colonial house. Upon first glance, it's a quaint, charming little two-story number, one whose architecture dominates the neighborhood. From this first impression, one would never suspect that it was the site of both a gruesome murder and an even more notorious haunting that continues to capture the public's imagination. What happened in the so-named Amityville Horror House? Who were the now-famous and infamous residents who lived there? And what's become of the house today? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to the terrifying conclusion of this spooktacular October series of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. The story of the Amityville Horror House begins way back in 1924, when newlyweds John and Catherine Moynihan built their Dutch colonial home at 112 Ocean Avenue in the quiet town of Amityville in Long Island, New York. They and their children lived there happily, and without incident, for many years, before the home fell under the ownership of the DeFeo family in 1965. It wasn't until this latter family moved in, however, that the place's lurid nature would be solidified. In the early morning hours of November 13, 1974, 23-year-old Ronald DeFeo Jr. killed his parents and four siblings with a 35 caliber lever-action Marlin 336C rifle. Physical evidence at the scene suggested that his mother, 43-year-old Louise, and his sister, 13-year-old Allison, had been awake at the time of their murders, while his father, 43-year-old Ronald Sr., and other siblings, 18-year-old Don, 12-year-old Mark, and 9-year-old John Matthew, had all been asleep. Both his parents had been shot twice, while his brothers and sisters had all been killed with single shots. Immediately following the murders, he later told police, he had showered and disposed of all evidence, specifically the murder weapon and any bloody clothing he had been wearing. At around 6.30pm that same day, DeFeo stormed into nearby Henry's bar, begging for help. He was later taken into custody and admitted to the killings. A year later, on November 21, 1975, after a nearly month-long trial, he was convicted of six counts of second-degree murder and, on December 4th, was sentenced to serve six sentences of 25 years to life in prison. It was around this time that ownership of the former DeFeo property fell into the hands of the Lutz family. In December of 1975, heads of household George and Kathleen Kathy Lutz bought the house for the bargain price of 80000 U.S. dollars. 
Several accounts claim that the couple were aware of the DeFeo murders prior to the purchase and that it didn't affect their decision to buy. So it was that they and their three young children, Daniel, nine, Christopher, seven, and Melissa, Missy, five, moved into the property, thinking that they would be very happy in their new home. No sooner had they moved in did the trouble begin. Well aware of the crimes that had taken place in the house and being somewhat religious themselves, George and Kathy had a priest come and bless their new home. Halfway through the rites, however, the clergyman was slapped by what George later described as, quote, an unseen hand, unquote, and was also told to get out by a demonic voice. As if that wasn't enough of a warning sign for the family, they soon reported that doors were seemingly being ripped off of their hinges. In the middle of the night, they reported hearing cabinets violently being opened and shut. Stranger still was an unknown substance like slime which oozed out of the cracks and crevices on the ceiling. This was often accompanied by foul-smelling odors that came and went. Several cold spots in the house made sleeping an impossibility, and Kathy even reported hearing the front door slam in the middle of the night. But what finally convinced George and Kathy that the strange occurrences taking place in their new home were directly connected to the DeFeo murders was the fact that George would mysteriously wake up at 3.15 a.m. most days, the same time that said heinous crimes are believed to have taken place. Other incidences included the children's beds, quote, slamming up and down on the floor, unquote, while their father remained glued to the spot while being paralyzed by an invisible force. Kathy also reportedly levitated several times while being transformed into a hideous old woman against her will. In all, the family spent a total of just 28 days in the house on Ocean Avenue. Though in all honesty, I'm surprised they stayed that long. If it had been me, I'd have been out of there right after the priest was slapped, but that's just me. Fearing for their safety from the evil supernatural entities that had taken over the place, they even left all their belongings behind, including food in the refrigerator and clothes in all the closets. In the couple of months following their abandonment of the house, word of the Lutz family's story had spread throughout the nation, inciting paranormal experts and ghost hunters to speculate as to what, aside from the DeFeo murders, could have triggered such horrors to infiltrate the property in the first place. One theory was that the house had unknowingly been built on a Native American burial ground, the vengeful spirits of whom were now fighting back to reclaim their ancestral resting place. Still others thought the paranormal activity to be the spirits of the DeFeo murder victims themselves, as well as the negative energy left behind by such crimes. With the public's curiosity running wild, it wasn't long before someone was brave enough to visit the property to see for themselves. Just two months after the Lutz family had vacated the premises, a local news network launched an investigation into the strange happenings, an event that reporter Laura DiDio referred to as, quote, a psychic slumber party, unquote, when interviewed by ABC News years later. Along with several cameramen and photographers, they also hired an elite group of ghost hunters, as well as psychics and other paranormal experts to back up George and Kathy's claims. Among them were paranormal investigators and real-life couple Ed and Lorraine Warren. During their stay, several team members reported feeling the aforementioned cold spots throughout the house, while others felt as if they were constantly being watched, especially at night. The crew took several photos on site, the most famous of which seems to depict the ghostly apparition of a young boy peering out from one of the upstairs bedrooms. The photographer, Gene Campbell, had set up an infrared camera at the top of the stairs to capture any suspicious or unusual activity on the second floor landing. At the time the photo was taken, Campbell swore that he saw no such person or entity staring at him from any of the rooms. When later compared with photos of the DeFeo family, the team believed the specter to be none other than little John Matthew, who had been just nine years old at the time of his killing. Following the investigation, the events that had taken place at the house on Ocean Avenue became nothing short of a cultural phenomenon. 
As the public became increasingly more fascinated with the Lutz family's bizarre story, several books and films on the subject were released. Perhaps the first and most famous publication was a book simply titled The Amityville Horror by American writer Jay Anson. Though subtitled A True Story, the book is deemed a novel and a work of fiction, but a masterwork of horror that, nonetheless, has informed and solidified the public's perception of the haunting events that took place in the early days of 1975. A film adaptation was released four years later, and several sequels were made throughout the 1980s and into the early 90s. Then, in 2006, the original film was remade starring Ryan Reynolds, introducing a new generation to this now classic tale of true terror. Despite the investigations into what became known as the Amityville Horror, after Anson's own book, there were naturally those who believed the entire situation to be a hoax from the start. After all, there was no physical evidence, photos or video recordings, presented by the Lutz family proper, and all the physical evidence that was collected came from the investigative team who went in two months after the family had vacated the premises. In the years since the haunting, several people and groups have come forward claiming that the events that transpired in the house on Ocean Avenue were nothing more than an elaborate fabrication, and a great deal of controversy into the story's veracity has surfaced in recent years. One of the biggest names to call hoax was none other than Ronald DeFeo Jr.'s own defense attorney, one William Weber, who, in an interview years after the notorious trial, claimed that he and George and Kathy Lutz had made the entire story up over, quote, several bottles of wine, unquote. The priest, one Father Pecoraro, who had initially been asked by the Lutzes to bless their new home, later stated in an affidavit that he had not in fact been slapped and told to get out by a demonic voice or entity, despite George's claims that he had been. In addition, the family who bought the house after the Lutzes, a couple named Jim and Barbara Cromarty, noted nothing unusual about the property, and they and everyone else who has owned and lived there ever since has not reported anything out of the ordinary. It's important to note, however, that not all the naysayers surrounding the Amityville horror are from outside the Lutz family circle. In fact, George and Kathy's very own children, Daniel, Christopher, and Missy, have all come forward in recent years to dispel any and all myths that may have emerged surrounding the incidents. Daniel, the eldest, even went as far as releasing a documentary film in 2013 titled My Amityville Horror, which recounts his side of the story. According to him, his father, George, was into the occult and studied dark magic, and had, quote, invited mysterious and dangerous forces, unquote, into their lives. Middle son Christopher has stated several times that, quote, he, his father, is a professional showman, and that the events in the Amityville horror books and movies have been stretched to the point of fiction, unquote. George, on the other hand, adamantly claimed until his death in 2006 that the story was true. In June of 1979, both he and his wife Kathy took polygraph tests relating to their experiences. The results were found to indicate that no lying had been involved. I can just say what I experienced, George told ABC News in his later years. To conclude, I pose a question to you, dear listeners. What do you think really happened? Were the stories surrounding the house at 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville, New York, an honest-to-God haunting by demonic entities, or was it all an elaborate hoax? To this day, one can only speculate. But no matter one's opinion on the matter, I think it's safe to say that the Amityville Horror has become a modern folktale, a contemporary urban legend whose veracity, questionable as it clearly can be, has become a cultural phenomenon that continues to haunt, pun intended, and intrigue as only the best ghost stories can. Should you ever find yourself in that sleepy Long Island town and pass the now infamous house, just imagine what it would say if its walls could talk.
Thanks for listening, and thank you so much for joining me for this spooktacular October series. Next week, I return to regularly scheduled programming, but I hope you nevertheless find it enjoyable, entertaining, and above all, educational. If you like what you hear and wish to support me to ensure future quality content, please consider becoming a monthly supporter. Just visit anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button. You'll be redirected to three monthly support plans that fit your budget. Listening and sharing help me in a big way as well, so please do so wherever you get your podcasts. Next week's episode guarantees to be a blast, especially for my British listeners, so tune in next Thursday and every Thursday for a brand new episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you then. <laughs>